You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. The problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccines. power and strength in women is the role because that maternal child and health and nutrition... ...is what drives this disease and, t- and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. On this episode of Take as Directed, I spoke with Dr. Christopher Murray, director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, or IHME, at the University of Washington in Seattle. We discussed the release of IHME's Financing Global Health Annual Report and the Institute's ongoing Global Burden of Disease Analysis. Chris and his team have been evaluating eating habits and food systems for people in 195 countries, and he shares with us some of the study's most important and surprising findings about global diet-related issues. Chris, thanks so much for being with us here today. We want to talk about the study that was recently published by the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington, published in The Lancet as part of your Global Burden of Disease study that looks at the health effects of diet. You chose to look at 15 dietary factors across 195 countries over past three decades. It's very ambitious and in some ways, I think, novel in terms of the questions that you were pursuing. So let's just start out. If you can just walk us through, uh, what were the main findings coming out of this this ambitious study? Great to be here, Steve, and happy to talk about our study on diet. Uh, this is part, as you mentioned, of the Global Burden of Disease 2017 work, and where we try to you know, look quite comprehensively at all the world's data and give that sort of macro view, country by country, of what are the biggest health problems. And we want to write up diet, and that's part of the main findings, because it's a dominant risk factor in a large majority of countries. It's mm-hmm. either number one or number two mm-hmm. in, in most countries. Counts, you know, overall at the global level, uh, it accounts for more deaths than any other risk factor and towards the top of uh, the list for disability-adjusted life years. It, uh, I think, you know, the numbers are around about uh, 20% or one in five deaths or uh, can be related to diet in some way, uh, any of the 15 components. And so, you know, that's one of the, the, the bigger effects. It's, it's remarkably large as a, as a determinant, mostly of cardiovascular disease, but mm-hmm. also of, of cancers. Should we be surprised by this? Because, I mean, that does, when you put it that way, it's quite striking. Should we be surprised at that? You know, I think it depends who you talk to. Mm-hmm. I think most of the public health community is surprised by that. And in some cases, the medical community is quite skeptical, whereas the nutrition community is not surprised. Uh, they've been making arguments, you know, not quantified in the same way, but that, that the importance of diet. And I think the way to think about this is that uh, we know that uh, why do we think diet's so important, even before you dive into all the numbers, is if you look at heart disease rates, you mm-hmm. know, mostly ischemic heart disease, but also stroke around the world, 
they vary from highest to lowest by a factor of, you know, almost 50, you know, from the lowest rates to the mm-hmm. highest rates. And you can't explain that variation with the other known risk factors like uh, – you can explain quite a bit by tobacco right. and some of the right. other drivers. But you can't explain it all in any way. So you then say, well, what could all this huge variation between, you know, let's say Russia mm-hmm. towards the high end and a place like Japan towards the low end, what is it? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the obvious argument has been it's, it's diet. Um, and what we then do is look component by component for diet, look at the uh, published cohort studies and trials that tell us about the risk associated with different levels of dietary consumption of harmful and protective things, and then put that all together with all the data that's out there on what people consume and put that into the analysis to come up with these assessments. So I think it's surprising to most, but not to the nutrition community. So just break that down. You have skepticism coming from the medical community. Is that because they feel like there are other factors, obesity, smoking, other factors that remain as powerful and important? Or what? what's the root of the skepticism coming from the medical community? Well, I think there's a, a very entertaining and insightful piece by John Ioannidis in JAMA mm-hmm. uh, in the last year, which basically exp- you know s- sort of summarizing that skepticism rather nicely, which is that diet epidemiology is largely based in cohorts. There's few trials in his argument, uh, and the effect sizes from these cohorts are too big to believe you know, the harms that you see due to diet. And, you know, these studies have not adequately controlled for all the things that go along or are correlated with, uh, you know, the way people eat. That's the sort of in a nutshell. And and that the communities, you know, we're used to this in the GBD because we're trying to be this sort of neutral broker of the evidence. So we, uh, particularly on the risks, we are constantly lobbied by one group saying the other group on their risk is exaggerating. It's just like every group says this about everybody else. So we're used to this. And we try very carefully to have sort of rules, evidence rules, and strictly apply them to every risk factor. And I think the controversy comes because people think their risk, whether it's tobacco or alcohol or, you know, radon, whatever it is, is got to be more important than the other people's risks. Uh, And, you know, we're trying to provide this sort of comprehensive view. I think there's some issues there, and, and we, if we have time, we can talk about things that are not in this paper, but the directions we're trying to go to address this skepticism about being more transparent about the strength of evidence on each of these risk factors uh, so that you, know, you, the user, can say how, how you want to interact with the evidence, so okay. to speak. Well, let's get into some of the specifics in terms of what the study tells us specifically around diet, around salt, around those things that we're supposed to be eating more of, grains, fruits. What, what does this show us? What's the picture that this paints? Here's where it is. The results from the study are different than the usual right. way people think about diet, which is I think the standard view of diet it's, is it's all about salt, sugar, and fat, right? And so you reduce salt, you avoid saturated fat or fat generally, uh, depending on who you talk to, and you reduce, quote, free sugar, Uh, You know, what we've done, because we have these evidence rules, you know, you have to reach a certain threshold of evidence to get included in the GBD in terms of the risk 
that's associated with a component is we've looked at, at much more detailed components. So we've looked at you know, uh, diets high in sodium, low whole grain intake, low fruit intake, low nuts and seeds, low vegetables, on down the list, low fiber, uh, high trans fat, because there's positive and negative diet components. And when we go through all 15 of those, uh, we end up with results that aren't quite what people might think. So, for example, towards the bottom of the list, in fact, bottom of our list is high in red meat. And a lot of people will say, oh, red meat's got to be one of the worst components of diet. And that's not what we find. Uh, we find that really big factors are whole grains, uh, you know, low whole grain intake, uh, high sodium intake, low fruit intake, low nuts and seeds, and low vegetables. Those are the top five. That's different than most people's uh, understanding, and it's more nuanced than salt, sugar, and fat, right? Uh, and what's missing in this analysis, and I think most people always ask this, is about sugar. And I think there's been recent studies like the Pure Collaboration sort of drawing more attention to sugar, but it hasn't yet met our threshold of evidence to include in, in the GBD analysis. We're, we're, every cycle of the GBD, we look carefully at this evidence. I think it may get there soon, mm -hmm. but it's not there yet. And then on saturated fat, noticeably, it's not on our list because definitely the evidence is not really there uh, to have it as, as equal to these other components. So you are suggesting, it seems to me, you're suggesting that we need to do a pretty significant rebalancing of our thinking on diet. Is that fair? I, if, if you're Is that coming, a fair that's estimation? That's a fair estimation because I think people underestimate – they see the big headline that diet's really big. Yeah. And then they immediately translate that back into these policies around salt, sugar, and fat. Yes. And I've, I've seen this now uh, through various cycles of the GBD, and I think you're exactly right, which is that there is a much more nuanced policy strategy to encourage intake of these positive things like low-grain fruit, nuts, seeds, vegetables, fiber, than the let's go tax fat or tax sugar. Uh, now, to be fair, there's also a component of total caloric intake that's not in this study. So we're saying – the quality of diet or, or the composition of what you eat really matters. And we separately in the GBD look at, uh, you know, the energy imbalance between the calories you take in and what you spend through physical activity because that shows up in our assessment in, uh, you know, overweight and obesity, which is also a really big risk factor. Not as big as diet, but it's also a very big one. So you put those two together – you know, food systems and what we eat is just a, potentially a really important avenue for health improvement. So when you line that revelation up against what you see by countries, which a lot of the diet practices are very culturally bound, right? They're very, very shaped by national cultures. How do they align? Uh, like which countries pop out, pop out of this study as those which have uh, practices and priorities of diet that conform with what your conclusions would suggest should be good health. So one way to think about that is who has the lowest death rates or disability-adjusted life year rates associated with poor diet? And the lowest are – and this will tell you a little bit about what type of diet – uh, or the cultural patterns are Israel, France, Spain, and Japan. And they 
you know, Israel, France, Japan, these are the classic Mediterranean diet uh, that people are, you know, familiar with. And Japan has also historically had a diet that is very different than what we've had in North America and other parts of Western Europe. So those are the ones that have the lowest rates or the best diets, uh, if you want to think about that it that way. Uh, and, you know, this is one of the alternative ways of thinking about diet, which is rather than focusing on the components, you talk about the sort of more general dietary pattern. The challenge around dietary pattern, though, is that that's a much bigger cultural sell to say, oh, you people in Poland or Russia should switch to a Greek or, you know, Israeli diet. Uh, and whereas I think there's value in looking at the components that, you know, the evidence component by component and then trying to think in a more subtle way, where is there scope within a country to push consumption towards some of the positive things that might work and away from some of the negative things? So where do you move this, these findings in terms of trying to change policy here in the United States, for instance? I mean, what's the target audience? What's the... What's you know, the objective in terms of – I know you didn't, you didn't set out with the idea of changing the thinking and policy of the U.S. government necessarily on diet. But this does put forward some pretty significant claims about the need for a rethink on the quality and mix of diet. And I th uh, it's a great question, like, you know, wh where to next on the, on the sort of policy front? And I think we take the view on the GBD front that, you know, step one is to say, here's the evidence, you, you know, in a neutral way. We are – we're not invested in any particular group's agenda. We try very hard to follow a set of transparent rules about evidence and how – you know, how data gets used and, and, and communicated and then give it to people to, to think about. But, you know, we're, we're also aware that the way you get people to pay attention to the evidence is to make it salient in their particular setting. And so there's a couple of strategies that we see around that. One is uh, our experience around governments and other groups like really embracing the evidence and acting on it increases when there's more you know granularity within a country. So when you have subnational assessments and you can say, oh, you know, Minnesota's doing much better than Arkansas, and part of that is diet, let's say, right? And we do have in the GBD diet assessments by state for the US, and I think that becomes one route into that discussion. The other route in is uh, you know, we now produce different scenarios for future health. And we've started to do some, you know, very diet-specific scenarios. Uh, we've been asked by other groups who are sort of more on the sort of policy translation front to run scenarios where what would happen if over a generation we move to an optimal diet, you know, as, 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 as we understand from the evidence right now. And how much of a difference is that going to make to the trajectory of health in a country? And then try to use that as a sort of um, more of an interactive, you know, policy uh, tool with different governments to say, look, you have these opportunities to change trajectories through, you know, if you can shift diets in the right way. So who's shown the greatest interest in this work? You know, is it public health directors by in U.S. states? Is it 
it's early. National you know, we leaders. Just, uh, is it who's? It's early days. Early days, and I I don't really have a great answer to that. I know we have had in other countries outside the U.S. immediately obvious to many people in government that a here's this large burden, and b that there is there may be ways that they can save money in the health system through prevention around diet modification. And so I think that argument, you know, both the health improvement argument, but the opportunity to potentially save quite a bit of money uh, has made it, you know, something that people are certainly discussing. The flip side is it's it's not as easy as, you know, tobacco, we can say, look, there's five known proven strategies that work to reduce tobacco, you know, the empower strategies. It's a little bit harder on diet where, you know, there's taxes and subsidies, there's public information, uh, you know, various types of campaigns. But it's not as obvious that there is this policy package like empower for tobacco that you just go adopt this, right? Because first of all, as you said a few minutes ago, diet is much more culturally connected and local. And I think we have to start that work to figure out how you go from the science here into locally relevant strategies. Um, and there are, there are groups out there interested in this uh, in terms of you know trying to tailor these results a little bit more to national circumstance. Now, industry, of course, figures in all of this, right? In a variety of ways, cast in some in some context as the enemy, marketing terrible products in terms of long-term health consequences. In other contexts, as the partner that is committed to reformulate and make and listen and respond and shape diet dietary practices through the marketing of healthier foods, where does this fit in your mind in what you're doing here? You know, the, 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 there's a difference here on food than, let's say, compared to other uh, risks where industry is involved, like tobacco. These are completely different uh, situations. Nobody needs to smoke. Everybody needs to eat. So there's always going to be a market for selling food products, and that market, given population growth, at least for the next sort of – 40, 50 years uh, is growing. At the but most level. of what you're talking about are unprocessed foods, right? Well, uh, these and are industry components. Is, I mean, a uh, huge portion of what we eat is processed food, right? Processed, but, you know, if you take whole grains, right? Uh, there are lots of ways, most of the ways that people in higher income countries are going to get whole grains are in food produced by industry, right? Yeah. It's not processed in the sense that they're turning it into white flour or, or you know, processed grain. But, you know, you're eating your loaf of bread made with whole grain or you're eating the crackers made of whole grain or whatever it is. Uh, so I, I think there's a very strong role for industry uh, or put it another way. I see no reason why the evidence on the healthy components of diet aren't, you know, ripe opportunities for selling – you know, healthy products. And so there's no particular reason. Now, there will be winners and losers. If, you're, if your industry is selling something that is not particularly healthy, uh, somebody else is going to gain by selling the products that are, as consumers sort of think more about how they want to improve their health. So what's the, uh, what's the next step in terms of research and analyses? What do we not know or do we need to look much more carefully at? You've referenced, you know, this piece 
chose not to look at A, B, C, or D. So in the next wave of work in this area, what's that going to take? So the next wave is that we really want to respond in a robust way to the skepticism that's out there about diet, but also about some other risk factors, right? What's the evidence on any of the risks? You know, we have 80-plus risks in the GBD, and people are always asking us or saying somebody else's risk is not as strong as their risk. So we've, over the last two years, been developing a strength of evidence scoring system, and we will start to roll out a star rating system. We're going to say, look, the evidence on tobacco and lung cancer, that's a five-star relationship. It is unequivocally, you know, convincingly demonstrated. The evidence on, you know, breastfeeding and pneumonia may be a one-star relationship, and the evidence on breastfeeding and diarrhea might be a three-star. I mean, don't quote me on the stars. They'll, they'll change as we get this finalized. But there's this real spectrum there on, on all across all the risks. And our idea is we're going to have very clear, transparent basis by which we say the star rating. Uh, it'll be absolutely uniformly applied to everybody with sort of no, no preconceptions. And we will then make available in the online tools and in the studies that we publish – uh, the view where you, the user, can say, I only want to look at the four- and five-star relationships. Uh, in, in, or you might say from the sort of precautionary principle, if you're a, a decision-maker for society, boy, I should pay attention to them all. I may, I may you know, on the, pay a little bit more attention to the stronger ones. But if there's a risk out there that I'm 90 percent sure is really harmful – uh, it may only get a one or a two star rating, but that's a huge potential benefit for society. So we we will fractionate the risks that we have mm-hmm. into these different scoring systems, and we will then essentially try to open up what's under the hood in this whole risk business. Because you know most people, including us, you know who are bathed in data all day every day. Every little area does their own thing, and what we've been trying to do is line everybody up so that we have a you know a uh, neutral playing field when thinking about what's the evidence for different risks. Well, there's certainly in 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 my lifetime there's been a lot of reversals of opinion. There's been a lot of myths around what's truly the best, health, most healthy food versus the most unhealthy food. There's been reversals, confusion. Old myths, new myths. It's a feel, It's a bizarre. It's a bizarre field in that respect. But positioning yourselves to be the umpire of risk, that's going to invite a lot of arguments. We are well aware that uh, some people will be thrilled and some people will not be thrilled. Which is why you know we're taking. We've been very slow on this, to be honest. Uh, we've been building this over a number of years, and we will start to launch this. Interestingly, we will f- probably first launch this around diet mm-hmm. just because there's so much controversy around it. And I think a number of the diet outcome relationships will be you know, towards the lower end of stars and some will be very strong, right? So we'll see a real spectrum. Like, when, when, are, when is this work? 
know, I, I'm hoping that we will uh, see the light of day by the end of the year, that we will put out our star scoring system for diet, and then mm-hmm. we will progressively march through all the other risks. You know, the more you dig into this, the more it's down in the weeds. You've got to really deep, get deep down into the weeds uh, on this and then roll back up to come to these judgments. And I think it's been uh, truly fascinating to sort of see how, you know, some of the areas the evidence is really compelling and in other areas, as you dig into the details, there's far more unexplained variation across studies than people are aware of. And so, you know, if if half the studies show a really big harm and half the studies show small harm or even the reverse, we tend in in this in the field right now just take the average, right? And then say this is it. Right. And that average if you've got a lot of studies and they're all over the place can still be very the the quote uncertainty in that average can still be pretty small. But we don't have a great explanation of why one person's study found that, you know, a much smaller effect on diabetes of of a risk than another person's. And until we know that and can account for that, that should probably make us less confident uh, about those relationships. So that's the premise behind the evidence score. More to come. Uh, I don't think diet's going to be a particularly – you know, affected it by any more than many other risks that people cherish and and believe in. I'm struck by – how animated and excited you are by this set of challenges that's appeared in this di- in this diet study and, and the risk estimations and the like. It's really quite intriguing. So thank you. Congratulations on the report. And we look forward to the next phase. Thank you very much, Steve. Thanks for the interest. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Take as Directed featuring Dr. Christopher Murray, Director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, at the University of Washington in Seattle. We invite you to subscribe to Take as Directed so that you never miss our latest episodes. For more information on our upcoming events and recent publications, please visit the CSIS.org Global Health Policy Center program page.